Hello to everybody who's ever had a dog fall in love with them. It's Beautiful Anonymous. It's one hour, one phone call, no names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you and you'll get to know me. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here and welcome to the first episode of Beautiful Anonymous of 2021. And doesn't that feel good to say? 2020's over. And I know not all the problems are over. I know none of the problems are over, really. But mentally, doesn't it just feel good to be out of 2020? Whew, I'm psyched. And I look forward in the coming months as things calm down to not having to mention the grim times on every single episode of the show. And I also... I, let me say this before, as we kick off the new year. Thank you to everybody who's been demonstrating. There's been this upswell of vocal enthusiasm surrounding the show in the past few weeks. It's been really cool to see. I've been seeing tons of tweets and Instagram tags, and all of a sudden people are really getting vocal again about their love of the show, and it means a lot. Thank you so much. And I tell you what, it's had an effect. We showed up in the New York Times, baby. How about that? The New York Times put out a list of the most comforting podcasts during the uh, current state of the world. And Beautiful Anonymous, number one on that list. Good old beautiful stories from anonymous people in the New York Times. That's always good to be on a list, let alone in a publication of record. It's really cool. Thank you all for being the people who who let the world know about the show and make things like that happen. Sincerely, that's got more to do with you and your enthusiasm than it does with me. And I mean that. Okay, this week's episode... We recorded this one a while back, and, and I, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's a really thoughtful call about what historically has been a very divisive topic. First thing I think we're all going to say is this caller does a remarkable job of just explaining the facts of what happened and the emotions of what happened. Her father opted to leave the world on his own terms. And she had to come to grips with that, figure out if it was appropriate to help, figure out how to help, if so, how to be there, how to experience it. And man, it's it's an emotional head spin of a call. And like I said, it's a topic that my whole life ha- has been pretty hotly debated. And to hear about someone who was side by side with someone who chose this avenue. It's, I, I don't even know what to say about it, except that it was, it was really, it really got my brain turning in a whole bunch of different directions. Can't wait to see your feedback in the Facebook group. And I hope you get something out of the call. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello. Hello. Hi, is this Chris? It is. It is. Hello. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Um, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I think that's the the quick and simple answer. Is pretty good. How about you? Okay, well that's. I'm actually doing great. I'm super excited to be talking to you on the phone right now. I'm excited to be talking to you on the phone. Yeah. So what's up? Well, I thought, you know, so I, I'm, an, I'm a newcomer to the show. Um, I kind of, I tried to binge as much as I could this last week. And uh, I just kind of felt like I had, I had some stuff that maybe your callers might want to, want to, want to listen to. I love that. Welcome to the community. I like that. I like that new people are finding it after four years. That's pretty cool. And I'm glad we just got a well, I, entire back catalog out there for you. That's nice. Yeah, like I, I don't, I'm, I live um, in South America, so I, I'm new to podcasts. Only, I only started listening to podcasts about a year ago. Oh, so, very cool. Um, yeah, so, so I just came across your podcast. I was listening, looking for a new one, and I came across it, and I started listening to some of the episodes, and I, they're just, it's just fun to listen to because it sound, it just, it's just like I love talking to people. I wish I had your job, actually. <laughs> well, I'm glad I get to have it. Let me just ask you a quick, quick uh, aside. 
Would you say the fact that there's so many of them available right now is part of why you got sucked into it? Um, well, let's see. Probably. Like, when I first started, mm-hmm. I, I do a lot of walks mm-hmm. in the morning. Like, I walk for an hour every day, and I need stuff to listen to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then once in a while, you know, I just, I just, and so I started asking some of the younger people that I hang out with, you know, what they were listening to. And so that's how I got, I got um, hooked on podcasts. And then just, I've been listening to some of the really real podcasts out there, just like, you know, people interviewing other people and just listening to just random conversations, which I just find fascinating because as you know, I mean, the more you dig, the, the more information you get from people that is just incredible. You know, in my job, I, I, I tend to talk to people a lot. So, um, and I love, I love digging and finding out really crazy stuff about them. That's awesome. Maybe some of the people in the corporate chain might hear that the availability of a large back catalog does help people get invested in the show. And I mean, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, um, that's nothing to do with you. Sorry, sorry, I'm being weird. I just don't want my stuff to go back behind the paywall. Anyway, it's not, not about me. Sure. Not about me. So you said you have some stuff you think our listeners might uh, be interested in. Well, yeah. So um, about, let's see. Three years ago, my dad died, and oh, he chose sorry. to die by. Um, well, that's okay. He chose to die by legalized euthanasia, and I thought that's something that um, that we might talk about today, just because it's probably not something that too many people have experience with. Wow! Yeah, that's um, something that I've heard about for decades, and all the controversy surrounding it. Yeah, that is that's quite. That's quite a topic right there. That's quite a topic. Yeah. But so, um, I, had, I had a fantastic experience with it. Like, I, I have nothing but good things to say about it. For me, it was, it was I'm, I'm really, really glad that it exists out there for people. Wow. Wow. And you said it, you said it was legalized euthanasia. So where, where did this take place? This took place in Canada. So in Canada, uh, it's been legal as of June 2016. Um, and this, yeah, this happened in August of 2017. Wow. So this is, yeah, this is, uh, this is pretty head spinning stuff. So you said it was a fantastic experience. Um, yeah, maybe I should give you some backdrop to it. Um, so I, I mentioned that I live, I live far away. So I only, I was only visiting my father once a year, um, because that's all the time I really have to, you know, to do a long trip. And in 2016, I had visited him and I visited him on my own without my family or my husband. And um, he sat me down and he told me that um, in the past year, he had tried to kill himself three times and none of those three times had it worked. And, and he was just really done. He was really done with his life. This was, he was 88 when he told me this. And so of course, for me, I was just like completely floored with this information just super sad about it just thinking wow what a, you know what a bad daughter am I to like not know that my dad had tried to do this three times in the, in the year before you know um and so from that moment on it was just kind of like okay you've got to put your big girl pants on and you got to support this guy because he's been there for you this whole time and now this is something that he really wants and and you need to support him on that. So of course, I mean, it wasn't like you know, okay, boom, everything is positive, and we're going to go forward with this. I mean, I had to do a lot of work on myself before I got to that point with him, um, where I was where I was okay with it. Because I mean, as you know, you, I, I had a little pity party for myself. You know, you know, why is he doing this? If I'm still here, if I'm still around and and, and able to come and visit him every year, why doesn't you know? Why does he want to live for that? You know, those those sort of questions had come up. But in the end, it was like, okay, you know, he's, he's alone the entire year until you come up to visit. Like my mom had passed away a good 16 years before and my father is almost 100% blind. So his, his, his world is just a little apartment, right? And his audiobooks. So, um, so yeah, that's sort of like the preamble to it. Wow. So I feel like in the discussion surrounding euthanasia that I know, a lot of times it's brought up for someone who has, let's say, like a terminal illness that they're suffering with and they know they can't right. recover from. It sounds like that was not uh, your your father's case. It sounds like he had more, his quality of life was was leading to depression, it sounded like. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's definitely right. Um, and that was my that was one of my biggest questions with my dad. Like in that time in 2016, when he sat me down and told me, you know, how how he'd been feeling and everything, I was like, okay, dad. Like, so we know that there's 
um, euthanasia available. And so we went to his doctor together. We went to his um, GP and his doctor was just not on board with this at all. He was just like, I don't even want to talk about it with you guys. I don't, this is, I, I have a feeling this might affect my, my practice. Um, so he gave us like a printout of information that he had got off the internet and he gave it to us and he was like, don't come back. Like that's literally, he was like, I don't want to see you again. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, and so I sat down and I started reading through the information. And one of the things that says is that, you know, the, the person that wants to, to do this has to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline. So as I'm reading this with my dad, I'm like, I'm looking at him going, that, that doesn't apply to you, dad. And, um, and then it says, the death is in the foreseeable future. And I said, that also doesn't really apply to you, dad. Like you could, you could live for 10 more years, you know, and then, he started to argue with me saying, well, you know, the fact that I've tried to kill myself three times in the last year, I believe that I deserve to have a dignified death. And, you know, I couldn't agree with him more in that sense. And I said, well, let's, let's see, let's see what we can do with this information. And so I had him contact um, the, the people that were in charge of euthanasia in, in our province. And yeah, they came back to him in 2017 after some, I guess a few little things had changed and they interviewed him. And then they said, okay, you're, you're eligible for this. And so my dad, I, at that point, I, you know, I was back down in South America and he called me and said, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm eligible for the program. And he was so excited. And I'm like, what program? And he's like the euthanasia program. And I said, okay, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is it. He's going to tell me like what day this is going to happen. And I'm thinking this was like in early August. And I'm thinking like he was going to tell me October or something like that. And he's like next Thursday at 7 PM. And it was, I think it was Friday. And so I was like, oh, okay, like, wow, okay, you know, like, we're like, not even a week. So I had to like, just drop everything and get on a plane and go up there. And so I got up there by Monday. So I had four days with my dad before he died. Wow. So that for me was really precious. Oof. Now there's a number. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's just so many things to speak about. I mean, okay. First, let me talk about sort of a philosophical thing. Then we'll get into some of the personal things because that four days it sounds like it must have been yeah. just, um, I mean, life defining for you, I would have to imagine. But, but first, let me say it, it brings up this really fascinating question, right? Where when your dad says, look, I'm not going to live 10 more years because I've tried to kill myself three more times and I intend to try again if this isn't something that's allowed. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's so wild for me because I'm someone who has suffered uh, greatly from depression and, and you sit here and, you, and I've, I've often said, and many of us do say, you know, mental illness is just as important as your physical illness and you have to tend right. to them both equally. And then it brings up this thought that he was certified as having a, a terminal level of, I don't know if it's mental illness or just, I mean, I guess if he's attempting suicide over and over again, is, is that ultimately what they said was, okay, this, this person is intent on doing that. This, this represents an incurable level of whatever they certified it as, and that is terminal. So we'll move forward. Um, I think the thing that got him into the program was his COPD, which is um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And he had, he had about 30% left of his lungs because he smoked a pipe his whole life. So I think that was the thing. They were like, okay, so the fact that he's only got 30% of his lungs, um, that means that his death is in the foreseeable future. And so that was like, that was the end. And do you get the sense that, cause you, you know, your initial reaction was you could live 10 more years um, since that hasn't been brought up before, do you get the sense that the people involved in this conversation sincerely believed that the uh, 30% of the lung issue was a driving factor or were they, were they trying to help him get where he desired to go ultimately? But I think the second, I think they were trying to get him where he wanted to go, but in a legal way. Yeah. You know, it's like they found, it's almost like they found the loophole. You know what I mean? Wow. And, and I'm so grateful to them. I am so grateful to them because it was like, when I finally understood what my dad was going through, like he would sit me down and say, um, you know, like it takes me one hour in the morning 
to like get out of bed and get my pajamas on and just to like get into the kitchen to like boil the kettle. He's just like, I'm done with that. Like, I'm so over that, you know, and he had no friends left. Um, you know, he, my dad was a brilliant man. And because he was blind, I mean, his only option was to get these audiobooks. And he had, he had a really good situation. He lived right beside our municipal library, which was a fantastic library. And he had this one woman that would just pick out all these different great audiobooks. He must have listened to like 20 books, like every two weeks, or so 10, 10 books a week or something like that. And he was like, there's no books left. Like I've read everything there is to read. You know, I've listened to every audiobook. I'm just done. And then, and then, to be honest with you, when um, when Trump came into power, he was just like, okay, that's it. Like he was just like, you know, this the world is way too crazy. This is just like it's insane. You know, and I'm so, I just I pray I pray all the time. Thank you so much that this happened because had it happened now with COVID and everything, I would not have been able to get on the plane to go and see him to be with him. You know, it 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 happened at the perfect time. It really, really did. Wow. I mean, I, I do just want to also say that as an American, hearing that, hearing that the state of American politics was ultimately one of the things that pushed him past a point of hope is like that. That is. Well, I mean, it's almost like you can only take so much outrage, right? Like, that's what I'm. Yeah. I mean, and I'm really sorry to anybody who's listening that, that is upset that Trump didn't win, but I'm so looking forward to the next four years of not waking up and reading the news and being completely outraged. Yeah. I, I, and <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've been feeling. And, and look, the sad part is, is I think we're all waiting with bated breath to see does that go away because I've said it up and down. There's a lot of news networks. There's a lot of online outlets that make a lot of money off our outrage. So I wonder if they're going to let it go or if they're going to say, oh, you know what? Our uh, our stocks are healthier and healthier because we can get these ratings based on outrage. So I, I, I hope it goes away. But yeah, I mean, as you, as you, oh, d- yeah. to hear that your dad was an accomplished person, a brilliant person who's just sitting blind in a room having trouble, you know, hearing that it takes an hour to get from getting out of bed to having a a cup of tea, just consuming information. Yeah. It, it does sound like, I mean, it does sound like, I hate to say it, but you're describing an experience where it's almost like when I, when I go to see the dentist and they go, oh, you know, we had an emergency, so you're going to have to wait like an hour in the waiting room. And I just sit there dawdling away on my phone I feel like within an hour, yeah. within an hour or two of having to sit there and be like, oh, I'm just sitting in a room reading stuff, I start to get bored. So, right? Yeah. I can see how he must have felt yeah. like he was almost in, in solitary confinement in a way. Yeah. And, you know, and the other thing, I remember the other conversation I had with him, and he said, you know, I just get so angry because it costs, like, what did he say it costs? He said it costs $5,000 a month to keep me alive. Like to keep me like to pay for the apartment, to pay for the food, to pay for the healthcare, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. So, and he would just, it would make him so angry that that's, that he's like, that's $5,000 that I'm taking away from you. You could have that right now and you could be using it for something. And you could, you're a productive person in society. And he's like, I'm not productive anymore. I don't need to be here anymore. He was from like that sort of thinking, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, he was like, I can't tell you, Chris, he was thrilled the day, the day that he died. So the day that he dies, like imagine for me, like it was like four days of counting down. Right. Like, I mean, who gets to, who knows when, when someone's going to die, except for somebody that's got their loved one on death row. Right. And there's like, yeah, I don't know, a time for that. Like I was like thinking who, who, who knows when this is going to happen? Nobody knows this stuff. Right. And so when it came down to when I woke up on the day, it was like, okay, it's the day, right? And it was going to be happening like at 7.30 p.m. or something. And so, and my dad, here's my dad. And he's like, come, comes out, you know, he's having breakfast and he's like, last breakfast. And he was like, you know, clapping his hands. And then it was like, you know, he had lunch, last lunch. And he was so into it. And so it was kind of like, I mean, I couldn't help but also be completely thrilled for him. And I was also not going to be the one to be crying the whole day and ruining it for him, right? So, yeah, I mean, he, we helped each other that day. We never really talked about it, you know, because we had talked about everything that we needed to talk about the last three days. And I, we had filmed him talking about his, his early days. He, he grew up in Argentina. So, um, 
we filmed him talking about that, about his childhood and how he hated his mom's cooking and things like that. So we have all kinds of videos of, of him talking, which is great. But, um, but yeah, when the day came, it was, he was, he was really cute about everything. He was just like, that's it. Last time I have to do this dish, last time I have to brush my teeth, you know, like he did the dishes. Amazing. Well, yeah, he was, he was extremely, um, extremely independent. Like we had it set up in the apartment where he knew everywhere. He knew, he knew all the steps from place to place yeah. and he wanted to be able to do that stuff. Imagine if you're not doing anything the whole day, what's do you know, you want it, you kind of almost look forward to doing the dishes. It's like, wow, I got something to do. I, I, I do get that part. And I know this is, this is maybe a morbid joke to make, but on this show, I, I do tend to find them. I have to say, if I knew it was my last day on earth, I would, I would actually be jumping for joy to be like, oh, I get to leave those dishes in the sink. But it sounds like he wanted to go out just saying, <laughs> let me have one last normal day that fits my routine and then be on my way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like he, he was funny because he was so much older. He was also really old school. Like, we, you know, um, he would always go to bed early sort of thing. And he was at that point in his life, he was going to bed like he was retiring to bed at 4 p.m. And I said to him that day, I was like, you are not going to bed at 4 p.m. on your last day. Like, you're having the big sleep at 7.30. Like, you're not, no, you're spending, you're, you're with us until that time sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, I had to argue with him about it. <laughs> now, are you an only child? I am not an only child. Um, let's, okay, so my brother and I, and I were adopted at birth and live with, you know, live with our parents. My brother went off the rails in the eighties, tons and tons and tons of drugs. And, um, did you ever see the movie jungle fever with Spike Lee? Spike uh, yeah. Movie? Yeah. You remember the drug addict in that movie? I, I think it was I, Samuel Jackson. Yes. Samuel Jackson. I do remember that performance. Yes. There you go. That's my brother. Wow. So you, you've lost touch and your father lost touch. I would imagine. Yeah, so that, and, and you know, in, in, and probably in a really good way, because uh, God, I don't even know, I don't know, I don't even know if he would have been on board with that, like to have to argue with someone else. Like, but for me, like when I look at this whole situation with the euthanasia, this was 100% my father's choice. Like, it has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I'm his daughter, but like, this is his choice. Whew. Oh man, everybody out there that makes you think about your parents, that makes you think about your kids, that makes you think about so much. Go ahead and take a break. We'll be right back. Break's over, everybody. Let's get back to the phone call. For me, like when I look at this whole situation with the euthanasia, this was a hundred percent my father's choice. Like it has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Like it, it, I'm his daughter, but like, this is his choice. And like, I know that there's situations where, where somebody wants to go. And then there's like the children that are like, you know, putting, putting a wrench in the work saying, no, I don't want this to happen. Like, I just don't, I don't agree with that. And so I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have to deal with that aspect. I think if there was somebody that was going to oppose that, that, that would have been, I think too much, you know? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I'm glad that, that he wasn't around. He knows. I mean, I did, I did reach out to him in the, in the way that I could that, you know, to let him know that he had passed and everything, but he wasn't, he wasn't part of it or anything like that. I, I have to ask, and, and I feel like actually you're well within your rights to go, you know what? It's something I just like to keep between he and I, but I would have to imagine that there's, uh -huh. There's a final conversation. There's final words that are said, and you know they are final. Most people don't get that. Are you talking about me and my dad? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what were the final words? Um, we had talked so much. In okay, and I should say that prior to that, like my whole family, we had been up. We had so he died in August, and we had been up for the whole month of June and part of July. So we spent six weeks up there. And I had literally just come back from the trip um, when I got the call saying that he was admitted to the program. So we had, we had spent quite a bit of time together and talked about everything. And when it was finally time, like around 6.45, 
my dad said, okay, so I'm like, going to go get my pajamas on. I'm going to get in bed and, and wait sort of thing. And I want you guys to go down to the lobby and wait for the doctor to come. So at that moment, um, I went into the bedroom with him and I just gave him a really big hug and I told him how proud I was of him. Um, and I loved him. And that, and those were pretty much our last words together, like in private, other than like, I, I, I was with him, you know, right beside him in bed when it happened and everything holding his hand. And yeah, it was really beautiful. Wait, so you, just so I'm clear, uh, so you went down, you met the doctor and then you did come up and you were there, you were with him holding his hand as he passed away. Yeah. So I, we went down and, and maybe I should, I should point this out. So the doctor that, um, that came up, she's a woman doctor and she actually has MS. Um, and so she's completely confined to a wheelchair now. And so she's actually the one that pushed to get euthanasia into our constitution in Canada, because she, at some point does not want to die a terrible death. You know what I mean? So in her future, she wants to die when she's ready to go because she does not want to die this horrible death from, from MS, you know what I mean? And so I kind of almost felt like I was in the presence of greatness with her. Like when, when I met her down in the lobby, you know, she came in, she has like an electric wheelchair and everything. And um, I was just like, wow, like, thank you so much for all your hard work to push this forward. And then my dad was the same. He was, he just could not stop holding her hand and, and thanking her. It wow. was, it was really, really, really emotional, really beautiful to see. And so anyway, so she came up, I had, you know, she was like, Hey, can you, can you put me into a separate room? I'm going to prepare all the medications. And then, um, so we did that. And then she came into the room with my father. And of course there's a few legal things that they have to do. Like you, that you have to make sure that that person, she says, are you sure that this is what you want to do? And, and he says, yes. And then, and then they go forward with it. And there's like basically six gigantic syringes. Um, and then they just, you know, they put the IV in and they start pushing them through. So that's kind of how it went. I don't think that she was in my apart in the apartment for more than 30 minutes. Like it was very, very efficient, I have to say. Wow. And it's with the actual activists yeah. that pushed it forward, which must, I mean, like you said, it was meaningful for you, I have to imagine, and meaningful for him, I have to imagine meaningful for her as well. And then, so do you have, do you have, I mean... Normally, if someone passed away at home, you know, someone discovers them, calls the authorities, they send someone to the scene, the body's removed mm -hmm. to a morgue. Do you, do you just have those people standing by? So this is what she said to me. I was kind of like, um, like, you know, cause you know, once my dad passed, she was like, okay, that's it. And, you know, she's packing up, she's getting ready to do that. I'm like, wait a second, hold on a second. You know, and I said, Hey, so I know that I'm supposed to call the funeral home now because she's the doctor. So she signs off on the death certificate right there. Yeah. So that's, you don't need to call any, you don't need to call the authorities because basically she's the authority. And then from there you call the funeral home and she's, and, and she, I remember, and I, I'm so thankful for this advice that she gave me. She said, listen, if you're ready for him to be taken away now, then go ahead and call the funeral home because, uh, because once you call them, they'll be there within half an hour it might take three hours but don't call them until you're actually ready for them to come mm -hmm. so we waited probably a, you know two or three hours we put some music on and some candles and we hung out with my dad for a while and then once we were ready then we called the funeral home and and you know they come and take him away which is also crazy in itself just being you know witnessing that like that's just not something that i'd ever been part of before so it was very um I tried to be like, you know, stand outside myself and just be interested as like a bystander, you know, not, not the emotional part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have nothing but good things to say about the entire process. And when you say we, there were other people present. My husband was there. So here's a funny story. Um, when my dad told me, he was like, um, okay, so I want I want you to make sure that you don't tell anybody else. And I want you to just come up on your own and, and we're not going to tell anybody. You're not going to tell your friends or anything because he was really worried that um, maybe some of, of his um, acquaintances or some of my friend's parents might be really weirded out by the whole thing because it's religious for religious people. This is not okay mm -hmm. to do euthanasia. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So, I was like, okay, wait a second, that like, I'm, I'm going to support you on this a hundred percent. I'm going to come up there and I'm going to be with you and all that stuff. And I said, but once you're gone, I said, who's going to take care of me? You know, like, cause 
I'm not that strong. I said, I need, I need my husband to come out there and be with me and, and be, be, be part of this and, and be able to take care of me at the end, because we also had to like, um, clear out his apartment within two weeks. And I mean, a whole bunch of other stuff that was like super difficult, just, you know, if you're just one person. And so finally he agreed that, that my husband could come and, and be part of it. And it was great. I mean, my husband and, and my dad get along great because they, you know, obviously they're both, they're both bilingual, they speak Spanish. And so, I mean, it was, it was really, really great. And I, in the end, my dad was thrilled that he was there. Um, and I'm so glad that he came because literally like for the next 24 hours, 48 hours, it's like, he's there saying, you know, eat this, drink this, smoke this, you know, like he was just helping me along with everything. And like, one of the things that I never realized when somebody dies is all the amount of time that you spend on the phone with relatives, you know, like that's only ate up a couple of days for me. So, and, and it was just, I wasn't really aware of that part of it, but, um, yeah, having my husband there was, was everything to me. Wow. Wow. Do you have kids of your own? I do. I have two fantastic kids that are, um, well, they're essentially adults. But, and okay, want to hear another funny story? So in March, when COVID starts, March, because I'm in South America, March is like September for us. Like that's March is when all the kids go back to school, like university and everything after the summer. And March 2020 for my husband and I was we're empty nesters because our second child was going to university as well. So we were like, just like, this is awesome. Like we've done the work. They're good people. They got into university. They're studying. It's all figured out. And, and we were, you know, we were going to shut down our, our business just for a couple of months and we were heading to Europe to go to the Alps because we, we haven't seen the Alps. So yeah, as you know, COVID. And so we were empty nesters for all of three days. It's a sick joke, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I have to imagine because I'm sitting here as you tell your story and, you know, I, I do my best to remain judgment free. You know, sometimes with these calls, I, I, I find it impossible, but with this one, I'm just really contemplating what you're saying. And I find myself sitting here thinking about my parents and then I find myself sitting here thinking uh-huh. about my son and I guess I, I'm sitting here going, how beautiful would it be to have that sense of peace with my parents before they left? I don't know. And then I think about my son and I go, how, how amazing would it be to, to be able to have an opportunity to go, you know, I think there's, I think there's some opinion or wisdom I've accrued that I haven't really relayed to you yet. Let me make sure you understand this before I go. And then I go, well, <laughs> and I'm sitting here in my head going, well, why, why don't I just do those things now? I don't need to think of it in the perspective of death, but I do think also having my son has made me ponder my own death a little bit in a way that's not as scary as it was when I was young. Cause I sit here going, okay, I was 39 when I had him. So realistically he's going to be in his probably early to mid thirties before he has to start taking care of me. Whereas my parents are still taking care right. of each other because they had me younger. So all these things are arising in my head and I'm wondering how has this made you think about your own death? How has this made you think about what you want your death to be for your children? Well, you know, as soon as it happened, uh, when my dad died, I mean, I looked at my husband and I was like, I want, I want to do this. Like, cause I, I just, I have a, an extremely good relationship, a really good marriage. I feel really lucky. And I just, I'm terrified that my husband's going to die first. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't want that. I mean, I, Jesus God, let me go first. You know what I mean? Don't, don't leave me be the, you know, with, with everything. And then, I mean, we've also heard of stories where people can do it together. There was a really nice story of a, of um, a couple that had been married, I don't know, something like 70 years and they, and they got euthanasia together. Um, they died at the same time. Um, what, what do I want for my kids? I don't want my kids to have to like, I don't want my kids to have to worry about me or take care of me. Um, for example, my father, my father had everything paid for, like the, we had the funeral plot was already organized. Every like the, the, like the, the cremation was, everything was paid for. I basically had just to walk in and sign things like none of the, the hard stuff was really, you know, still there for me to, to deal with. 
Um, and so I hopefully will do the same for my kids. Like right now I'm trying to like figure out what, what it's going to be like in 10, 20 years for my kids when they're, when they're all adults and they have, they have kids of their own. We don't really know what it's going to be like. I feel like it's like the big unknown now. Is there going to be a COVID two? Is there going to be a COVID three? What's going to happen? You know what I mean? Like, so during, since March, like since we've, we haven't been working since March. And so my husband built, um, a huge greenhouse so that at least we can make our own food. We have chickens now, you know what I mean? Like things like that. Like, I'm just like, we need to start preparing for a future that we don't really know what, what it's going to be about. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question because it's yeah. going off on a tangent. There. No, I, uh, let's me and you just need to philosophize on all this. Cause I hear what you're saying. It's like, I mean, a, a year a year and a half ago, I think we a, a lot of us used to go, oh, these doomsday preppers are nuts. And now I think we're all going, yeah, no, what they are is ahead of the curve on the rest of us. Um, right. And and then, you know, one thing I wonder if you thought about, because I think there is, and who, I don't know how true this is, you know, you sit here and you go, well, when something like COVID happens and there's millions of people dying. You sit here and you do sometimes have the thought, is, is this the earth correcting the problem that is us? Cause we're abusing the earth. Um, yeah. Like see, we're the virus. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Right. Like you, you see floods, you see hurricanes at, at rates, you see the ice caps melting, you see all sorts of stuff that we cause. And you sit here and you go, is, is this the earth kind of, is COVID the antibodies of the earth? Is it the white blood cells of the earth? Right. Yeah. Then you sit here and you start thinking, like, I feel like another thought that I've heard quite often is people go, you know, if, if you link up with a partner and there's two of you and you decide to have more than two kids that ecologically you are putting strain and you start to think, wow, that is real. This is science and yeah. philosophy and grim. And then it ties back into your story of going, I wonder if there's going to be people seeking euthanasia to go, you know what? I have, I have had my fair share of time and I want my, like your father, I, I want you to financially be able to um, have a, have a yeah. security blanket. Now I want you to ecologically, I, I want to feel responsible. It's all, there's all sorts of moral quandaries about the future and about euthanasia. Huh? I know I'm just rambling. Yeah. No, but it's true. Like, you know, like in, in the Netherlands, um, they're actually right now, they're arguing about whether they're going to have a euthanasia pill. Like you're going to be able to go into the pharmacy with like a, a prescription and say, yeah, I've been prescribed a euthanasia pill. Thank you very much. Like, and you, you go home and, and then that's it. I mean, I can just see all kinds of problems with that situation, but, um, but it's a, it's super interesting that they're thinking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you said that was the Netherlands, right? Yeah. I mean, the 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 Dutch are way ahead of the curve on legalizing everything, huh? Yeah. Well, okay. So, like I told you, I was adopted. Um, I found my birth mother when I was about twenty-one, and she's Canadian. And when I met her, she's like, "Okay, so your birth father's Dutch, and so I'm half Dutch." And when I was thirty-five, I met my Dutch family and everything. And it's just like they're so. I, I feel really proud to be half Dutch because I feel like Dutch people are they're super pragmatic. They're very like, oh yeah, you know, like when I found my birth father and I talked to him on the phone, I was like, yeah, so I think that you're that you're my biological father. And he was like, oh okay, well let's you know let's go ahead and do a DNA test and before we invest any emotions in this, and then we'll go from there. And I was like, okay, perfect, that sounds great to me. You know, like it was just very like, you know, no nobody got their their, their feathers ruffled or anything like that. Um, it was all just like, oh, okay. And then, like, as soon as we did the DNA and, and it was a positive, he, was, he called me up and was like, okay, so welcome to the family, you know, and that was it. So it was, yeah. Um, they, they look at things very, very, like, like, I feel like they look at things and they don't have a whole lot of emotion in, into the stuff they're looking at. They're just looking at facts all the time and figuring out how things, how things work. And, like, if you ever go to the Netherlands, go to a place called, it's called the, I think it's called the Water Museum. And they basically tell you how, how the Dutch people figured out um, figured out living without sinking into the water sort of thing. And it was just amazing. Like when we went with my kids, um, the, the kids were like maybe 10 and 12 and they walked in there and after they walked out, they were like, they, they basically understood. There's no, no questions for the parents about how it works. They, they understood it all from, from the museum. So yeah, nothing but good things to say about the Dutch. 
Yeah. I, it, Are you still there? I am. I'm just, it's so, f- I, I sometimes do just kind of like take a step back and go, this is why I love that this is my job. Cause you and I can be talking about euthanasia and how you help walk your father through the process of his own self-selected death. Then we can also talk about how much we admire the pragmatism of the Dutch. Like those things can come up in the same <laughs> conversation. And it makes me really thankful that this is, this is my job. I guess. Uh, yeah. To get back to the real topic at hand, those four days, which must have been mm-hmm. four truly head-spinning days of your life. Were there time, were there any moments where you you found yourself going, "Please don't do this. What are we doing here?" Or was it just, "No, I feel his peace and and it gives me peace as well." Cuz I can't imagine I, I I sit here and think of my two parents and I go, "I can't imagine a situation where I don't have at least a stretch of time where I beg them to reconsider. And and it sounds like you had that, but I'm wondering if those last four days, how much that reared its head. Um, okay. So this is what happened. After we, I told you we were, we were up there six weeks with the family. We'd come back from, from the vacation and it was, I think it was like, I want to say it was, she died on the 17th. So it must have been around the 9th or something. And we decided to call. I was like, let's Skype. Let's Skype grandpa, you know? And so I, my kids and my husband and, and I, we were, we were sitting there in front of the computer and we Skype my dad. And this is when my dad tells me over the phone, oh, I got accepted to the program. And I knew what it meant and the kids didn't know what it meant. And so immediately I started to cry and I asked my husband to take the kids to another room um, because I just, I hadn't prepared my kids for it. And, um, and I was just like, dad, are you sure that this is what you want to do? Are you hundred percent sure that this is what you want to do? And he was like, yes this is, I'm, he's like, I'm thrilled. I'm just so happy. It's finally going to be over. And so then I just, you know, took a big rest, you know, like I said, put my big girl pants on. And, um, when I got there on, on the, the Sunday or the Monday, I don't remember what day it was. I asked him again, if this is what he really wanted to do that I didn't, I was like, I don't want you to think that, you know, I've, I've moved mountains to come up here and all this stuff. It doesn't matter that I'm here again. I, I, if you want to like, change your mind. We can do that. Like I, I a hundred percent just laid it out, but I only said it one time because I could tell that it was stressing him out. Like he was, Chris, he had one foot in the grave. Like, let me tell you, like I told you there were six syringes, right? So the first two syringes, they, they put them in to, to relax the body. The second two syringes they put in to stop the breathing and the last two are to stop the heart. They had put in maybe half of the first syringe and my dad's eyelids were open and never, he never blinked again. This caller, right, is using words and we can all see the imagery in our mind. Uh, Let's everybody just take a deep breath and, and think about how we feel about that. Be right back. All right, everybody, that was the final break. And now we're going to go ahead and get our final words from the caller. One foot in the grave. Like, let me tell you, like I told you, there were six syringes, right? So the first two syringes, they, they put them in to, to relax the body. The second two syringes, they put in to stop the breathing, and the last two are to stop the heart. They had put in maybe half of the first syringe, and my dad's eyelids were open, and never he never blinked again from the, the first syringe. I don't know how to explain that to you. It was just basically like he was so there, like he was a hundred percent there. You know what I mean? And so as soon as they put something into his body to relax him, like my, my, I think my father never even took an aspirin. He's one of those people that never took medication. And so it must've just completely had an effect on him right away. But like I said, he never blinked again. So, I mean, that to me, it was just like, he was just, you know, and I, he just wanted it so bad that I had to a hundred percent, be there for him and know that this is the best thing that I could be doing for him. You know, like I don't have any regrets, you know, for being with him and and not trying to convince him, but like, let, yeah, let me tell you, Chris, I was, I was part of me was hoping for him to say like when the, when the doctor said to him, you know, David, are you sure that this is what you want to do? I mean, yeah, I was hoping that he was going to be like, wait a second, maybe like we should think about this, you know? Yeah. I, I was hoping for that, but it didn't happen that way. And that's okay too. 
So by the time you did head up there, your kids did know what was happening or no? Were yeah. They, so they did. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I sat them down and I explained absolutely everything to them. Um, it was, you know, they felt really, really sad because they knew that they weren't going to ever see him again. And I think they were just really sad also for me. You know, they could tell that I was super affected by it. I tried to, you know, I tried to go outside and do, do like the heavy crying away from them. Um, and I remember one time at, on the la- on the day that my dad died, I remember, I think it must have been after lunch. It was probably like 2.30 or something. And I, I excused myself and went into the bedroom. And, and I think I stuffed like the pillow and turned it off because I was like, I was having a huge panic attack, you know, because it's just like, you're like, okay, um, five hours, four hours, three hours, two hours, you know, like, and then you're like, it's 30 minutes, it's five minutes, you know, things like that. And it's just, it, it does a number on your head for sure. But um, I had, I had my husband there and, you know, just holding my hand. So yeah, it was okay. And, you know, you've, you've underlined so, so many times and so eloquently that your father, um, that your father was truly preferred this method of leaving. And it does sound to me like the way you've described it, you, you know, you said it's fantastic that you want it to happen to you. It does sound like ultimately you're happy that he passed away this way rather than you just getting a random call from, you know, one of his healthcare workers oh, someday yeah. that says we found him on the floor and, it is, it is far more oh, dignified yeah. when you think of it from that perspective. Oh, I mean, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I can't even imagine, yeah, getting that call and saying, you're, you know, he's, he's gone and we need you to come up and, and deal with this sort of thing. Uh, no, I can't even imagine. I, 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 I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, you know, no matter what, it's sad, right? No matter what, yeah. when, when somebody that you love leaves the earth, it's super, super sad. And and, and there's no way around it. But I mean, the year after that, I, I witnessed one of my best friend's um, husband die of cancer and like the agony that that man went through the last two or three weeks of his life. You know, like there's no way I would want any of my loved ones to go through that. No way. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, you know, it, it's really... Uh... Oof. Like not to dwell on it or make it about me in any way, but I'm sitting here going, you're describing something that I can understand the perspective in which it is such a peaceful thing and in many ways a, a beautiful and dignified thing. And then I also sit here going, man, a, as someone who has, you know, has tried to harm myself over the years, I sit there and go, well, that's what it, what a, what a layered what a layered thought. And, and I find myself stymied. I have found myself in this, this conversation stymied probably more, more times throughout the call than I have been in years. Like I've learned how to navigate this show and I just sit here going, wow, there's just so much to think about. There's just so much to think about. And well, I, get- I mean, Chris, if that's something you tried, you tried to do that. Like I, I, I think about those three times that my dad tried to, to kill himself and he was alone. Yeah. And that it, it just breaks my heart, like to think about that. And he got like he did that really crazy thing. So I asked him. I said, "How did you try to kill yourself? Like, what did you do?" And the first two times he had gone to the doctor and told him, you know, made this big lie about how he couldn't sleep at all and that he needed like really strong sleeping pills. And of course, you know, he swallowed the entire bottle of sleeping pills and slept for three days, and that was it, sort of thing. Um, and then I said, "Okay." So that didn't work. And I said, what did you do the third time? And he's like, oh, okay. So this is interesting. And he says, I, I was listening to this audiobook the other day and they were talking about, I suppose it was like something in the first century before Christ. There was like, there's some evidence of um, some soldiers that got really, really sick um, because they, some soldiers or some horses, the horses, uh, the soldiers' horses had eaten a whole bunch of rhododendron leaves or rhododendron flowers. And apparently they're super, super toxic. And my dad remembered that um, in the, lo- at, you know, out, right outside the lobby of his apartment, there's a huge rhododendron tree. And so he told me that he went down there um, 
like at dawn one day, and he picked all the buds off the rhododendron tree, and he made a smoothie out of these rhododendron buds and drank the whole thing down. And he was, and then he got violently ill, you know, like, you know, diarrhea, vomiting, fell over, you know, completely. And he was, and he was by himself when that all happened. And he said it took him about 24 hours to get off the floor. So, I mean, I'm like, okay, well, you know, you're a, you're an intelligent man. Like we don't need to be doing that kind of stuff again. You know what I mean? Like that. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, that must you know? be so heartbreaking as a daughter to hear about your your blind 88-year-old father picking buds off a tree out of desperation and mixing them up in a... You, yeah, like... That must be the story or one of the things he tells you where you go, okay, let's seriously consider what you're asking because I just can't have... You can't have that. You can't have that. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was like, okay, dad, like we need to, you know, and it was like, I made him promise me because he lived, he lived high up in an apartment, you know, on the 10th floor. I was like, you need to promise me that you are not going to throw yourself off this balcony, that you're not going to like walk down the street somehow and throw yourself in front of the train. I was like, you do not put other people, you know, in danger <laughs> because of what you're going to do. Like, you, all, I, I said, you have to think about the person that's going to find you. And so he did promise me that. He's like, I won't do anything like that where I'm going to involve somebody else that could possibly, you know, traumatize them for life sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so I mean, nothing but, I mean, it was so great that it happened as quickly as it did. You know, I mean, it, it was terrifying for me because I really thought that I had more time. Um, but you know, looking back on everything and now that we've got COVID and all this stuff, no, I mean, it was, it was the perfect time for sure. I wonder, I, I find myself sitting here going, wow, I wonder what people are going to think when they, when they hear this episode, because there's going to be such a wide range of reactions, right? There's some people who are going to be sitting there cheering and going, this is exactly why I believe that this is something that that should not be stigmatized. And there's going to be some people going, well, human life has value no matter what. And there had to have been a way to improve that life and everything in between. So I guess the, right. I'm sitting here wondering about it. And Meg, I guess maybe the best way to explore those reactions is to think about oh, what have, what have people said to you in your life when they find out that this happened? Well, you know, using one of your words, they're stymied. Like people are just like, they've never, they're just like, whoa. Like they, and it just, it kind of stops them in their tracks. They don't know what to think because I don't know. I mean, okay. Here's, so I had, when I came back, um, one of my, one of my friends, I'll put that in quotation marks. Um, I told, you know, I had told her about the experience and she was like, Wow that's like, she's like, wow, yeah, that's, your dad really took the unnatural, that is such an unnatural way to go, like, wow, he like, he basically cheated is what she was saying, you know, and I was like, at that moment, I, it was just a little bit too raw for me, everything that had just happened, and I felt like that was an incredibly insensitive thing to say, like, I felt a little bit angry, like, it was just like, well, natural, unnatural, I don't know, who cares, right, like, I mean, this is what he wanted, it was his life, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I was just a little bit too, I could have been a little, just super sensitive at that, at that moment, but I didn't feel like that was like a fair thing to say. Do you know what I mean? I feel like only, only a Canadian would say, would find a way to go. You know, maybe I was just being too sensitive about other people's opinions on my father's death. <laughs> o- only a Canadian could find that, that caveat within the middle of that sentence. No, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, like I have people say like things to me like, oh, so you're adopted? Wow, you met your birth mother? Like, wow, I can't, like, what did you say to her? And I'm like, thank you, you know, like, thank you for having me inside your belly for 10 months and selflessly giving me away to a family that could provide better for me, you know, and like, you know, and some of the opinions are like, I think that your mother is really selfish for doing that. And it's just like, don't remember asking you what you thought, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I really have always thought I, I, I um when I was in high school, when I was entering my freshman year, there was a kid who was a year older than me and he took his own life. And I remember and obviously this is a very different situation. This was a I, I believe fifteen year old boy, so obviously 
I don't think anyone would say uh, it's the same situation you've described with your dad. But the reason I bring it up is I remember being so furious and I'm still so furious that his parents wanted to name a scholarship after him and the school wouldn't allow it. And um, they were hoping that his yearbook uh, for his graduating class would include his picture. And again, they wouldn't allow it. And they said they didn't want to, um, you know, glorify it somehow or encourage copycats or feel like people would get positive attention for taking their lives. And while I do understand that perspective, I also remember being so profoundly struck by this feeling of, it feels like this boy is being judged for the way he died. And yeah, ever since that, I have, I've just always felt like that's just, I, I just think that's a great wrong to judge someone for how they die. It happens to people who get addicted to drugs, right? You can feel people's mm -hmm. judgment of that. It, it happens with suicide. You can feel people's judgment of that. And I think that, um, to hear someone, to hear that someone called your dad's death unnatural, I, I understand why that sent you to a place of anger because it, it comes from a place of judgment, right? And I just right. feel like that's exactly. one of the things that should be out of bounds, no matter how someone dies. When someone leaves the earth, I feel like you can ponder it, you can explore it, you can ask questions about it, I'm sure, in your case. It sounds like you have no problems discussing the topic with people, but to judge someone for how they died is uh to me just leave it out of bounds just leave it out of your heart you know yeah agreed i think that's totally something that uh, yeah it has what's what why you know like what what's the what's the purpose of it what's the purpose of being judgmental about something like that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i don't know i think it just ends up hurting a lot of people yeah it's because I'm telling you, even I'm not sure what to think. And I, but we're still able to discuss this for 53 minutes now, judgment free, because I'm sitting here going, I have always believed, ever since you heard stories about Jack Kevorkian back in the day, you sit here going, Right. If someone has terminal cancer, and like you said, you saw a friend who just, there's people who spend years of their lives in immense pain with compromised quality of life. And I've always said, seems to me like people should be able to choose at that point when it's time to go. I've, I've always thought about if I'm ever in a situation where, you know, it's, do we pull the plug or not? Because this person's effectively, you know, they're, they're living, but only in the sense that there's, there's a heartbeat and breath. I've always said, right. well, please pull the plug. That's not what I want. But I've, I've never considered euthanasia for someone who effectively at the end of the day was just uh, kind of Done. kind of just exasperated by life and sort of tired of maybe the loneliness of being of having your spouse pass away and just kind of yeah. done, just kind of done like, with it. I've never thought about that. Even I'm not sure what to think, but I'm never going to judge it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like I think I think there's no case that's the same as another, like if every single case is different. Right. And I think at the end of the day, somebody just needs to, like with me, uh, he knew that, that I would, I'm the type of person that will listen. I'm a really good listener. And I, and he knew that I would sit down and I would give him that. Like I would listen to exactly what he was telling me and what he was trying to say. I'm, I only feel bad because I think he was trying to tell me years before and I just wasn't really paying attention somehow, mm. you know? And, and when I, when I look back on that whole situation, it makes a little bit sad that perhaps I could have maybe spared him a year of loneliness and maybe gotten him through through a year before had I had I really picked up on the signals. But I think I was just really busy with my life and my kids and as we do, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm, I'm not there for the day to day. Like, I mean, my dad and I would talk every, every Sunday and I would, you know, I'd come up once a year to visit. And I, and I know that wasn't, that probably wasn't enough and maybe I should have been going up more than that but that's just not the way the way it, it worked out you know I live I live really far away it's like almost it's if, if I can get to Canada from here in 24 hours that's actually really good it's more like 36 hours it would take me to, to travel wow. where'd you wind so, up in South America yeah it's a, it's a big deal I'm in Chile I'm in a small town in the south of Chile so oh 
Uh, we've got COVID, we've got earthquakes, we've got vol- volcanic eruptions, we've got all kinds of stuff. But listen, I had a friend of mine get married in, uh, in Chile, and I am in love with that country. We, uh, they got married in Zapayar. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, wow. Absolutely beautiful. Valparaiso, beautiful. Santiago, beautiful. There was... People don't realize, in, 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 tell me if this is, I, I believe the truth, man, there's just free roaming dogs all over Chile and people kind of treat them like squirrels <laughs> because Mike's, what I hear is that there's never been rabies. Like, um, so you don't have to fear these dogs. And That's not true. Okay. Uh, that's <laughs> good to know. Good to know people have their eyes. Tell me why there's so many packs of dogs are everywhere is because essentially people just don't fix their animals. Mm-hmm. They don't have money for that. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, in the little town that I live in, there's like a pack of like 11 of, of these. <laughs> you got to stay away from them because sometimes they're not super friendly. But yeah, big packs of dogs everywhere all over Chile. That's like the one thing that foreigners take away from our country. It's quite funny. Yeah, the dogs are there. A dog fell in love with my wife. There was this, my wife went out for a run <laughs> along the beach and this dog started following her. And on her way home, my wife bought some bologna and fed the dog. And then we woke up the next day and we were leaving Zapier at that point. And the dog was sitting outside of our hotel in the rain. And when my wife emerged, the dog flipped out. And then when we went to put our bags in the car, the dog jumped into the car. And we had to remove the the dog. And my wife, of course, bursts out crying. She had named the dog Curly Dog because it had curly black hair. And then when we drove away, it chased us up the streets. And when we got to the highway, it was running down the highway after us. And I mean, my wife was crying. We still, if I bring oh, up Curly Dog, if, if Curly Dog gets brought up, she starts crying, saying that was my dog. But then you think, are we going to move a Chilean dog who's used to total freedom in a beach town to a one-bedroom <laughs> apartment in Queens? That dog would re- have nothing but regret. <laughs> nothing but regret. And right. I'll t- here, I'll tell you what, to, and I know I'm rambling and making about me. I, I feel bad, but you'll appreciate this as well. So no, don't worry. The big choice, because Chile is such a long and narrow country, is for for uh, for tourists, right? You start in Santiago Valparaiso, and then you decide: Are you going to go north or are you going to go south? You, you generally aren't going to do both. Right. And uh, south is Patagonia right. and the lakes and all that. We decided to go north, and I'll tell you. We said, you know what? We could just fly up at Kalama, right? Is that the mining town up north? Yeah, that's where Chiquicamara is. You went up there to San Pedro? Well, we went to San Pedro de Atacama, which is one of the most magical places on planet Earth. Magic. Absolutely. Yeah, we are. I honeymooned there. Oh, my goodness. You are in the middle of a desert, and then all of a sudden it's like, drop a town that feels like a fantasy town of what you want South America to be, multiply it by Williamsburg before Williamsburg was was cliche, fill it with the best food you've ever had and just hang out with the nicest people you've ever met. But here's what you'll laugh at. We were in Zapier going to San Pedro de Atacama and we said, you know, let's not fly up to Kalama. Let's, uh, and, and let's just make a road trip out of it, which wound up being a no. bad idea, bad idea. <laughs> drive, drive, driving through a desert on on highways where we quickly realized the only reason people are on these highways is for commercial trucking. This is the only reason people right. take these highways. This is not sightseeing. This is <laughs> this. It, that was a long and hard trip that at points was scary. But I have to tell you, Chile has a piece of my heart, and San Pedro de Atacama in particular. Oh, wow. Oh my God! What a beautiful. Well, Chris, you, if you ever come back, you need to come to the south. You need I, to come to the south. We'll um, take you up an active volcano. Oh, I love it! And we've Just talked about it. it. We've talked about it. Talked about it. Well, it's funny. We only have forty seconds left, so I, I'll never really know the story. That's crazy. How you got down to Chile from Canada? But I do just want to say thank you for sharing because this is a divisive topic and a topic we've all heard about. And to hear you break it down so eloquently about how uh, peaceful and, and and how you know you you, you give it a, a glowing review as far as a life experience, eye opening and fascinating. And I can't thank you enough for sharing it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Chris. I, like I said, I, I, I was absolutely thrilled that I was able to to get online with you today. And, and yeah, I, I really hope that people take something positive out of this conversation. Absolutely. So much love to you and your family and, and wishing nothing but love and peace to your father. 
and please enjoy the wonderful country you live in because, oh my God, although I've never been more scared than when I was on one of those funiculars. People are like, oh yeah, this is a weird <laughs> elevator up the side of a mountain that's been here since 1880. And I'm going, well, how often do they service right. it? Because it's making weird clunking sounds. <laughs> but everything. Never been serviced. Guaranteed. Oh my God, it's beautiful. Beautiful place. And I hope you and your family enjoy it. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day, Chris. Caller, thank you again. This one was just so eye-opening, so thought-provoking. And I say that personally, and I'm sure everyone's gonna, everyone out there is gonna agree. And and in the comments, I'm sure you're gonna see so many, so many, such a range of uh, such a range of reactions. And and man. What an amazing call. And hey, if you ever get back to San Pedro de Atacama, have a slice of tres leches cake for me because the best dessert I ever had was that. Thank you to Anita Flores in the booth. Thank you to Jared O'Connell. Thank you to Shell Shag for the music. Thank you to Jordan Allen for all your help. ChrisGeth.com if you want to know more about me. If you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. If you're on Spotify, follow. If you're on Stitcher, favorite. It really helps when you do. Check out our whole back catalog ad-free at stitcherpremium.com slash stories. Thank you so much for listening. 